Hello and welcome to the latest episode of No Limits with Christoph and Luke. Episode 15, today is the 10th of uh, April, 10th of April, and we're just wrapping up the Easter weekend. He has a bank holiday here in the UK, we get a four-day weekend. But you fellas are hard at work, I guess, Look like stock market's open. Uh, yes, sir. We we Americans uh, don't have extra days off. We work. We That's how we get things done. No time for crumpets and tea on this side of the uh, Atlantic loop. So Very good. I've been a busy boy here. I've been studying my portfolio and a, uh, a particular stock you recommended that seems to have skyrocketed this morning. So well done, Christoph. Thank you. You're paying for my beers this week for sure. You got it, buddy. That's what I'm here to, <laughs> that's what I was born to do. We're going to talk a little bit more about that when the time's right today. Okay. The photo. Good. So you are back, uh, you are back across the pond, right? No longer skiing. What's your next adventure? Because the, the, um, the assumption being you, you, you as, as the real world chain pond have <laughs> other missions already lining up. What's it going to be? Uh, well, so I have spent an hour this morning planning the 2024 ski season, but, uh, the most imminent trip we're having out to Dublin in Ireland, uh, week after next with a couple of buddies and we're doing a sort of three day poker tour, poker visit. So, um, that'd be fun. And then it's a Croatia trip after that on the bike. Oh my God. I love both of those. So yeah. poker specifically in Dublin, because there's a game there or because you're uh, just renting. <laughs> yeah. Right. Cause, uh, uh, just probably go leave. I don't think he listens to the podcast. So one of my very close friends, uh, is banned from playing poker anywhere in the United Kingdom. <laughs> so we have to go overseas to play. <laughs> so we're, off to, uh, we're off to Dublin. We're off to go to Spain to play, but we're going to Dublin to take each other's money this time. How does one get banned from? Uh, yeah. Uh, okay. well, so, uh, well, let's say he, uh, yeah, during a moment of clarity about a decade ago, he self banned. So, uh, so that's how one gets banned without nominates themselves. <laughs> so off to Dublin, Dublin, right? Dublin, you go. Dublin, yes. Yeah. yeah. And I get to exercise my Irish passport. I managed to secure Irish or basically European citizenship middle of last year to undo damage that Brexit has done to me personally. So, uh, so that's nice. How'd you manage that? Uh, my grandmother on my father's oh, side okay. was born in Northern Ireland. I didn't realize that was good enough, but a Hong Kong buddy who did the same thing told me that it's the island of Ireland. So, uh, they're good enough. And, uh, thank you, Nanny Ruby. I have my Irish passport. Very handy. Fantastic. I really ought to renew my Polish one then. Who knows where the world will lead you in decades to come. And then Croatia, right? Yeah. Croatia, Serbia, Bosnia, Montenegro. Yeah. I, lo I absolutely love Dubrovnik. When I was there uh, as a young whippersnapper before graduate school, so many memories. What a city! I'll be taking my uh, some of my podcasting gear. I think we're recording at least one episode when I'm on the road, so uh, I'll try and get you some nice scenic countryside for that day. Perfect. You want to talk about investing things? Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. That's why we're here. Uh, you're up first. You're going to tell us something interesting about this chap, Balaji. Yeah. So. I think last week's episode, I mentioned that he's this polymath that has technical chops, a PhD in engineering, and also looks at geopolitical and historical currents 
from a very high level. And that when you listen to him talk, it's like, it's like a drinking from a fire hose kind of thing of information coming at you. And he has this meme. We're talking about Balaji Svrvinson. He has a meme on the internet that says Balaji was right. And so, <laughs> uh, and it's not always a good thing. So he recently made a bet about Bitcoin going up to a million dollars because the banking system is systemically corrupt. And he was urging people to take seriously the alternatives we have. And I think whether he's right or wrong, I mean, the bet was insane and outlandish. So everyone in a sense knew in quotes that he was going to be wrong or, or will be wrong. But I think his point is, is ought to be taken seriously. And that's the, that's the merit, I think, of his philosophy and his insights. So recently on Twitter, he said something else that I, that caught my eye and I thought we could banter about. He wrote, after AI has eaten everything digital, I think there are only three things left that are scarce, community, cryptography, and commodity. And then he elaborated, community, AI creates physical people. Cryptography, AI can't fake digital signatures. And commodity, AI can't make oil and natural resources. So I thought it'd be good to maybe riff on this a little bit. It seemed to have provoked me a little bit into thinking. A little bit of picture background for me is that I, I personally truly feel that these are one of the most interesting times to be alive ever because of the absolutely out of this world increase in rate of transformation and energy. Well, maybe it's just the highest, quickest rate of change that we've ever seen. And so what took 20 years or 30 years before might only take six months today and it's only going to increase. That's the stunning thing. So. I'm thinking about AI quite a lot and I'm trying to consider, I guess what Balaji was considering, what can't AI touch? And the first thing that I personally came up with is the first item on his list too. AI can't create physical people, community. And I think to me what that means is if I'm now trying to study something or try to still put in deliberate worked time or effort into, I don't think it's a bad idea to continue to invest in people. In other words, understanding people and understanding squishy things like emotions. And, and I guess you could, you could vouch for this. The business world, you know, runs on deals and it runs on personalities, right? To some extent, to a large extent, you meet people, you go on golf trips. There's something that the numbers can't capture. And I think in the world where coding becomes obsolete because the machines will do it, until we have general level intelligence, it seems to me worth continuing to invest in community and in people and in relationships and in that that those things that be quantified about humans while we're still on top. How does that land for you? Yeah, I, I agree. And, um, you know, it's going to make all of our worlds nicer if we think about that 
you know, even, um, you know, introducing education to, uh, the developing nations and trying to create sustainable sources of energy and food, all the things that can make our lives just easier and better, improving human lifespans, you know, longer, healthier lives. I think AI can help us do all those things. But if you tie into the community bit specifically, you know, how we interoperate and chat, like maybe AI can create efficiencies around that. Like the internet certainly helped us create these communities globally based on interests as opposed to, um, you know, geography, knowing the people in your local village, um, or your town or city. Maybe I'm being old fashioned here, but currently the state of the world, as I experience it as an individual embodied being feels extremely fragmented, you know, a feeling of, uh, watching the same show as everybody else and then waiting to talk about it the next day that kind of sense of like togetherness more and more, I think as the years have gone by with social media and how social media affected, how people interact with each other, we all know about bad behavior. It's something about these platforms make everyone anonymous or disembodied. So you get to be your absolute worst self. And then that kind of creates more and more division and tension. And then it's real and serious with legitimate repercussions. We humans have figured out a way to be to have a clean split. Oh, when I'm this way online, I'm going to be this way. But then in real life, I'm going to be this way. No, these things bleed into one another. The more time you spend practicing being critical and divisive and, you know, playing with misinformation and all that stuff, the more you're going to be likely to do that in quote unquote real life. So I think this community piece feels especially important to me now. You know, what's the one thing I want to cultivate? What's the one thing I really want to put work into? And that, that to me is tending my own small garden. What groups of people can I pack on a, in, in a real way? And so I think in, in this sense, you know, community like seven investing, that's kind of, I think where the strength lies. I've gotten about this before, but over time, you know, the same people show up, you begin to trust them, you begin to learn from them. They end up trusting you and no matter what the AI robots say or don't say, there's a, there's a palpable value to that deepening of community. So that's point one. Yeah. I, I buy that. Yeah. And you know, what's that number one deathbed wish for most folk when asked if they're in a sort of hospice environment and it's not, you know, I wish I spent more time in purpose spreadsheets and in, by chatting to the AIs, it's. Um, I wish I spent more time with friends, with family. Uh, it's all about kind of people and interrelationships. Yeah, right. And so to kind of flex this back onto investing, if you are listening to this perchance as a solitary lone wolf investor, urge you to take seriously, uh, joining a community of in other investors because it is so immensely important, even in the offhand chance that you don't, in a sense, learn anything valuable about any one stock per se, the communal feature of feeling like you're all in this same boat together in the com camaraderie and all the ways you get to check your theses, I mean, it's invaluable and you could only get that, I think, via community. So it's not a small thing. The second piece is cryptography. AI can't fake digital signatures. And I think this is my bet and why, interestingly enough, 
very, very bearish against a platform like Coinbase at the moment. I see a lot of corruption. I see crypto as an industry suffering and about to collapse on itself because the systemic corruption was wide enough, deep enough that in the end, what we're seeing come out is every last one of these platforms has, has had some serious malfeasance behind it. In a sense, a platform like Coinbase survived the liquidity crunch that's going to come its way if, when Binance, the last kind of big player collapses. So I hate to say it, but it doesn't look good for something like Coinbase. However, I also think there's immense value in what Balaji is saying that AI can't fake digital signatures, which means that in an age where trust and proof of ownership gets muddier and muddier, uh, the cryptographic blockchain technology does in fact solve this problem. So if you said you bought this thing on the blockchain, you did buy this thing and you, and from there, the smart contracts can be built. And I, my bet is that in the next 10 years, the world's financial system will in fact transition to doing everything on blockchain. Right. But I suppose that links it to the third point, right? Because in that sense, cryptography makes a, you know, an individual Bitcoin, for example, equivalent to a commodity. You can't duplicate it. It's a physical thing or it's just, you know, it's a digital thing, but it's a unique thing, um, which is, which has a finite supply. Yeah, right. This thing about, I guess to me, Luke, it's so interesting, this world we're living in now where I guess for the last decade and change more than that, you know, everything became digitized, digitized, and then the SaaS model was born, right? And then software was eating the world. And now, of course, if you invested in those kinds of companies starting in, in I guess, the last three years, you're seeing nothing but red and pain on your scorecard. I don't think that's going away. I don't think digital is going away. I don't think the cloud is going away. I don't think data is going away. However, and this is, I guess, a little bit of a segue into the other thing I want to talk, so talk about, am reorienting my own corner of the market where I'm looking at more and more into, I guess, the physical manufacturing of things. Before we go there though, just, um, just a sort of big picture thought on this Balaji tweet. So. I guess the bigger thing he's saying is like AI is going to touch everything. Here's some examples of, of things it can't, but AI is still going to allow us to say, make use of commodities more efficiently to maybe create communities in a different way. I, I tried to think of a fourth thing though, and, uh, the way I turned it into a C is a bit hokey, but if I think about my own, the resource I value the most that. AI nor anything else can make more of, and it's time. I make it into a C chronology. Um, so, uh, AI ain't making me any extra time, but, uh, but neither is anybody else. So, you know, use every day valuably. Yes. You'll all be dead soon. So yeah, <laughs> times are ticking and then that's not a joke. Time swiftly passes by, you know, this is our only chance. So, you right. know, what are you waiting for? So yeah. Uh, I've turned my direction, investing resources and energy into learning about the battery world. And the reason I am doing that now is because the pieces all add up. Climate changing, we need renewable energy. 
the renewable energy has got to be stored somehow. Uh, and without batteries, a lot of the, a lot of this can't happen. And that's not even to talk about electric vehicles and wearables. And, you know, I mean, the world runs on energy, electricity. And after reading the, the grid, I saw just how urgent this problem is. It's also a matter of national security and so forth. So when the U.S. government, for one, is subsidizing a lot of these investments by close to 50% in tax credits in cash for the foreseeable, I don't know, decade, how could I not get interested in this? And my first pick for it in the sector was the my April pick, a tiny little battery company that is under the radar because it had bankruptcy issues, but it, the help of the Department of Energy, it would not only survive, but it would, my thesis says, thrive. So I'm starting to look into, into batteries and you know the way I do things. I, I really need to start at the b bottom and then build my knowledge base up. And uh, to do that, I'm kind of trying to refresh my chemistry. Uh, and you know, what are batteries? How do they work? That kind of stuff. So I came across this book, which I have not yet read, but you'll be hearing more about it from me soon. It's called Stuff That Matters, Exploring the Marvelous Materials That Shape Our Man-Made World by Mark Moydownick, Professor of Materials and Society at Universal College London. Hey, maybe we could have him on the pod. He, uh, he had a follow-up books, uh, liquid stuff, I think, all about the liquids that enter our world. So I kind of want to get my hands dirty, you know, like back into the, the realm of the material. And a second book that I did start and I'm well on my way is called Charged, A History of Batteries and Lessons for a Clean Energy Future. And this talks about more complex relationship between... Uh, renewables, it turns out, Luke, whether you know, know this or not, it's not just like fossil fuels and carbon emitting materials are bad and you could easily switch to another thing. No, batteries require earth, earth materials, right? Well, these earth materials uh, live in only certain places in the world and lo and behold, not everyone has equal rights and there's abuses in labor and all kinds of things. So it's not a, you know, it's not an easy problem to solve, but trying to understand, I guess, how, you know, the chemistry of this stuff, the shift that's required gives me more confidence as an investor to then when I open up the investor deck and I see the materials being used and the battery technology that's being talked about, okay, I have a platform from which to then kind of begin sussing out the legitimate opportunities from the fanciful stories. That's what I'm doing now. It's, it's a good shout. And I think that's a, like my buddy Albert and I always used to refer to mega trends and certainly energy is a massive mega trend for like, well, it has been for a long time, but especially so as we transition more into renewable energy, like now it's objectively cheaper to generate power through solar than it is through fossil fuels. That transition happened a couple of years ago because of the cost efficiencies in making some panels. So as you say, like storage is goes hand in hand with with renewables because the nature of pretty much all renewable sources is they're not guaranteed always on so you want to be able to save that energy somewhere so you can pump it out when 
the sun ain't shining when the wind ain't blowing. Um, so that makes certain sense. Uh, glad you're doing your, your deep dives and you're uh, building your foundation and knowledge for those recommendations. Yeah, and uh, one other thing to mention, Luke, it, it's uh, I also have a feeling that because things go in cycles, the stocks are linked to software as a service. They're the, in turn going to be forgotten and kind of dumped on. And when the macro economy shifts and businesses start getting better deals for their capital, those stocks will come back. So it's not that I am abandoning in the sense, it's not that the thesis was wrong. I hate sounding like a broken record, but I think this is the more think about it for myself, the hardest thing to do in investing. Look in places almost seem contrarian and unpopular, and where you're going to get a lot of blowback and you know, you're wrong for this and this reason. And sometimes that's a mega trend. Sometimes it's a timing issue. Sometimes it's a particular company. Uh, but when people massively have negative things to say, or, you know, are listing bearish uh, reasons, I want my energy and focus there. And sometimes if the bearish reasons are in fact credible and right, then I wouldn't touch it, you know, with a, with a 10 foot pole, uh, where there's contrariness, there is massive opportunity. I'll put it, I'll put it to you like that. So like energy and batteries are under the radar, but I think some companies are being unreasonably punished and likewise SaaS stocks, I kind of am sensing that they're going to become undervalued in short time. Yeah, I've, I've, I buy that. I think you're wise and you're right to say, uh, your comment through a couple of podcasts ago, yeah, you have to be right and you have to be contrarian. Um, you don't have to be contrarian, but certainly there's an advantage there because the market is fundamentally undervaluing whatever that thing is. Um, I listened to one of our colleagues podcasts just the other day, uh, while I was in the car, I think Matt interviewed a guy called, um, Tobias Carlisle. Don't know if you caught that one. Well worth a listen actually. Um, and Tobias was chatting about, among other things, like investing in like companies and industries that are kind of scorned by the wider market. But if something, if something is like a bit of a shit co, it could still be an incredible investment if it's mercifully undervalued, like it might be in a terrible woeful state, but if sentiment is so hard against that company or the industry it operates in, it could deliver like really poor results and still have a massive uptick because everyone's expecting like even worse, okay, it's kind of price for absolute doom. So I suppose there's no one right way to be a successful investor. There's lots of ways of approaching it. Yeah. And I'll add to that. Another really important mantra is I've learned maybe the hard way too many times is there's a big difference between loving the company and the stock. And that might be, you know, I mean, that gets into the complexity so fast, so quickly. But as you know, for example, I recently sold my NVIDIA shares <laughs> and I absolutely love NVIDIA, but I sold all, uh, all but one of my shares. Right. Uh, and then, uh, you know, we were having a little bit of a banter and what did I do with the money? I, 
I put all the money from this beloved company of mine into this little podunk battery that's new company that's nearly bankrupt. For which, by the way, dear listeners, I got rewarded with a clown face, a clown face from, uh, from a team member who shall remain nameless, but, but I saved the receipt and we shall see, we shall see how that turns out. But I think the bigger investment lesson here is it's, I, I'm arguing it's hard to do. It's hard to sell a great company to buy a shitty company in well, shitty. I mean, it's, it'll, you know, it's all relative. Um, but I think I made that decision because I was able to, given what I know, discern the potential of the stock over in the sense, you know, the potential of the company, if that makes sense. So clearly I gave you the clown face. I'm half in jest and I was howling quietly, like cigaring to myself as I posted it. But, um, uh, you know, I have stock in both of these companies in NVIDIA and in your little battery tech co, or at least I've got call options on it. Um, I want them both to succeed. You're absolutely right. I suppose I, so I've taken a thick now the decision not to sell my NVIDIA stock just to wear whatever downturn is coming. Cause God almighty, like it's so ridiculously overvalued at 177 times free cash flow. The company has never been this expensive, quite frankly. Um, so it's priced for beyond perfection. I'm expecting my stock holding to get cut in half. Who knows? And if it does actually calls for celebration, cause I'm going to add to it. I just, I'm really averse to trying to time the market. So I'm different investing styles. I'm happy to wear a downturn cause I can add to my position cause I'm still growing it and that's yard. That'd be a good thing. I think, um, but I, I wouldn't argue with any investor who decided to reduce their position. I don't know if that's turning out completely, but reduce it makes a lot of sense. And I would encourage all our subscribers listening to this to not think in binaries either, because you know, this is a binary, the way we're talking about it, almost like sell NVIDIA and buy a nearly bankrupt company or not. No, it's more like, um, somewhere in the middle, you know, there's gray area and you could do it in terms of different percentages, or you could actually. Uh, uh, you could assess this problem in more ways than I am now. I used to be a long-term investor when I never sell. And now I'm going to be a momentum trader, you know, looking in the dungeon corners of the market. I think of myself as, you know, like a platypus. Uh, I try to really, uh, from the bottom up, from the fundamentals, uh, looking to, to satisfy both those, both those, um, be right and be contrarian. And sometimes when the, uh, when the potential is so much greater over here, I'm not going to stay committed to a label or philosophy just because that's how I invest in quotes, which is hard. And I'm like, I'm fingers crossed to you is platypus as opposed to clownfish. That's how it plays out that way. <laughs> I really hope I don't end up a clownfish. <laughs> and you know, the only reason, the only reason I say that uh, is because I think you've massively over-allocated to this niche idea. You, you said you were sort of like 20, 30% invested in this one company. Like for me, that's my style, that clownish behavior. 
even if you're in like a Google or an Amazon or something super robust, that's just way too much allocation to do it into some craziest company. Well, you know, in my, my world, that's gambling. Yeah, that's interesting. We're talking, this is two poker players, uh, sitting yeah. at the table, you know, and the analogy I gave, uh, in my report was that to me, this feels like holding aces, which pre-flop is what? 80% aces? Sure. Yep. Yep. 82, whatever right. the, yeah, yep. whatever the number is, which means, you know, you're going to lose 20% of the time. As I did more research and digging into this, I, I kind of bumped up the probability up to 90%, which still means I'm going to lose 10% of the time. My own, you know, assessment, why did I make it my number one position, uh, and at approximately 25% is because I still think in my phase of life with income coming in in a 90 something greater probability, as far as I could tell, I'm willing to take the swing. If I lose, it's going to be extraordinarily unpleasant for my portfolio, but I will survive and I will fight another day. You know, if you're, if you're in a different phase of life, approaching retirement, you just don't do this. So it's risk management stuff. And you have to know, that's the other thing you have to know. I had to admit to myself by working backwards. Yes. If I'm wrong, can I be wrong? Yes, I could be wrong. If I'm wrong, I'm going to lose this much amount of money. Will that devastate me? And then, you know, work from there. Yeah. Very so wise. this is exactly why, but you know, it's very not risky. It's like, it's a highly legislated against in terms of giving personalized investment advice. You have to go through a ton of training. And in the end, the training tells you, you can't actually say anything useful to that person anyway. It's completely pointless. Um, you got to figure this out, stuff out for yourself, do your own due diligence, don't trust others. And it's highly personal, as you say, you know, your stage in light, how much, how much of your net wealth is tied up in the stock market. All of these things are very individual and very critical to those decisions. So, you know, I, I want to just twist this just a little bit, just to kind of see, I'm curious how you'll answer this Luke. this, maybe I should save this for, <laughs> oh man, this could be. No, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to save this for one of the questions at the end of our conversation. Okay. Because uh, it's too good a question. Okay. <laughs> okay. You have uh, things to tell us about uh, robotics? Uh, I do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, let's do that. Um, we were digging through the ARC Big Ideas 2023 deck, like a few episodes ago, and picking up random topics. I don't know if we've got bored of this now, but I'll do one more and then we can decide if we want to carry on with it. Um, I picked out robotics, um, and I've got a bit of a vested interest because I think I kind of own a robotics company in my portfolio. So we'll chew the fat over that in a sec. But a couple of factoids from ARC that I think are, uh, quite fun and interesting. And it all ties into the rapidly increasing efficiency of robots in different forms. Um, and how that, you know, how they're becoming dominant in, uh, manufacturing as well as a bunch of other sectors. So, uh, Arc tell us that ro robot performance has increased 33 times in the last seven years. Um, so if we now compare, say at the end of 2022, a, this is like an Amazon warehouse type environment. So, you know, highly production line type of work. So humans pick and place about. 400 items per hour 
the robots used to underperform that in 2019. And as of 2022, robots can pick and place a thousand items per hour. So now far in excess of the efficiency of a human. And I guess as a consequence of that, Amazon in particular, a bunch of other companies as well are ramping up their deployment of robots. So, uh, they Amazon have something like 1.6 million human employees worldwide at the end of last year. Uh, they now have half a million robots deployed and it's up from 350,000, uh, a year prior. So accelerating rapidly. Um, and this is all really because of advances in machine learning, uh, computer vision, all these kind of AI type things that are just enabling robots to do much more, much faster. And I gather Amazon are now producing over a thousand robots a day. So, uh, in the next couple of years, certainly the number of robots they have in their warehouses and in their logistics chain is going to exceed that 1.6 million humans. That's quite interesting. I think. So we say robots, we talk about manufacturing there, but actually robots are being used in lots of different sectors. So in healthcare, um, just a, just a sidebar a little bit into a company I've owned the very first growth company I ever bought actually, and I've, I've already shared this on Twitter, so it's certainly not private information. Um, I bought a company called intuitive surgical who are kind of surgical robots. Now they're not really robots today. They're actually more like extensions of a human surgeon and the, the surgeon has uh kind of a 3d augmented reality type view and they have their own their own hands are driving tiny tiny manipulators on the end of like little robot arms inside the patient so they're able to do you know micro precise surgery but the company's interesting because it's kind of transitioning i think potentially into being a sort of truly autonomous surgeon at the point where they'll get FDA approval for this because you're already now, if you're a surgeon doing some sort of, uh, well understood surgery that the robots have been used thousands and thousands of times for before, if the surgeon tries to do something that's a little bit unusual, you know, maybe they make an incision that's perhaps not in the standard place for a particular type of operation. Well, the intuitive surgical robot gives them a bit of a heads up and a warning, won't stop them doing it. But I'm giving a warning, by the way, you might be doing something uh, unusual here. So they can kind of check, check what they're up to. And so if we're at the stage with intuitive surgical, where the robots are kind of monitoring and prompting, we're probably not that far away from the stage where subject to approvals, the robots actually doing the surgery, maybe overseen by the human surgeon, and then suddenly going to democratize healthcare, make these complex, expensive operations, perhaps much, much cheaper and kind of roll them out to the whole world because you wouldn't need to be a surgeon in the same geographical location to be able to oversee like a hundred robots doing these, uh, prostatectomies perhaps all over the world, um, much lower cost. So robots in healthcare, I think very exciting. Um, robots in agriculture and food production, uh, you know, farmers are far more efficient these days than like one human can manage a far higher output on their farm. Um, with robotic assistance, um, robots in exploration and research, you know, in space or in hazardous environments. Um, I think really interesting, really interesting sort of conversions of robots and AI 
and we're going to start to see this stuff um, far more. And even our friends over at OpenAI, they've very recently invested $23 million, not a lot of money, probably shows the direction of travel of their own thinking. They've invested $23 million into the robotics company 1X Tech. So this perhaps hints at some ideas they've got about bringing, you know, chat GPT or the other technology into the physical world. Um, well, I guess we've all seen the Boston Dynamics robots kind of leaping and prancing around. I've only seen them on YouTube, but they certainly seem to be far more agile uh, and perhaps, well, terrifying, I suppose, over the last year or two, that's their capabilities. What do you make of all that? Mind blown. Thinking about everything you said in terms of increasing rate of change. So that's what's coloring all of that, that, you know, it, it's not even so much that we can make fancy robots. It's at what rate that is beyond what we comprehend or expect, will these robots begin pro proliferating and actually, uh, taking over in the dystopian sense, but taking over things we once did not think could be taken over. And then part B for me is how do you model financially something like robots being made deliberately by a company like tesla who we know has the world's best engineers and essentially unlimited capital pool in that they're deliberately working on creating more robots like where in your spreadsheet do you how do you how do you evaluate any of that which is i think the answer is people don't right now i don't think there's any analyst on wall street that has robotics in Tesla's PL. And yet it could be like what? Hundreds of millions? Yeah, I mean, I don't sure. know. I just certainly massive accelerant to uh, their efficiency if they can start to but it wouldn't even be about taking humans out of their manufacturing chain. It would just be about like 10xing their manufacturing capability with the same number of humans. Um yeah, probably one uh, Wall Street-ish firm that have baked this stuff into their model, I guess, is ARK Invest, right? They're pretty fanciful All with right. their financial models. And as well. Right. They've just erred yeah. on the other side, which is yeah. slightly <laughs> inaccurate. <laughs> real world, yeah. uh, yeah. real world numbers. Yeah. It's uh, something about yeah. buying a robot right now. I'm, uh, I'm in the market for a robotic lawnmower and a uh, spring has sprung. So the grass is starting to grow again. It's probably time right now. Don't know if you've uh, had a play or seen any of those in operation recently. Didn't, didn't, uh, what's it called? Uh, Roomba? Didn't they, weren't they work? I was holding out for one. They had one, but they announced in 2019 and it turns out, I just, I literally refreshed my DD on this just an hour ago because I'm looking on Amazon to buy a, a lawnmower. Uh, it looks like they canceled it in 2020 because they wanted to focus because of COVID and, you know, supply chain challenges. So they just kind of doubled down. They've, They've launched a mopping robot for the house. So they can need to like, mop a vacuum, but you can't cr cut your grass yet. So it looks okay. like Bosch and a few other manufacturers are the place to go. Okay. You know, I, I mean, maybe you're, you're British royalty, whereas the, us Yanks, we like getting out there. We like rolling up our sleeves, you know, put on the rice hat, you know, uh, and, and put, you push the thing. I don't even use electricity. I get one of those. <laughs> One of those manual things, you know, work those traps, work those delts, you know, get out there, break a sweat. Just a different difference in, in, uh, way of, uh, living, huh? 
I've got to I've got to protect the neighbours because uh, they usually get an eyeful of Katrina in a bikini doing mowing the lawn. So uh, <laughs> to protect their eyes. Yeah. Luke, are you ready for your three questions? Uh, yeah, I am. Let's do it. Because it, I, I, so wait, I need to, um, I need to cross one of these out. While you're figuring that out, if you're just joining us on episode 15, um, Christoph is going to pitch three conversation topics to me. I'm going to put a line through one, then he's going to pick one of the remaining two, and I'm going to try and give him a minute of wisdom on whatever random fanciful thing he's come up with. Okay, here we go. Here are your three, three options. If you could, number one, if you could become a master or say PhD in an academic discipline overnight to better your investing chops, what would it be? Question number two is you are fated to live the rest of your life with either intense boredom or intense anxiety, which of wow. those two do you, uh, do you pick? And then the question I really hope <laughs> you, you answer is it's the beginning of the night and you are told that on your way to the, to play poker in a high stakes, high stakes poker world, you are going to get dealt aces five times a greater rate than, okay. than probability suggests. Okay. And so these are big stakes, big, big table. How much of your, of your wealth do you bring that night to that table? Got it. Okay. And uh, I think I've got an answer for all of these, but I'll like, I guess you want to talk about the last one. Uh, yeah, my hands are pretty boring to all of these a little bit. I'm going to put a line through boredom anxiety because that's just going to make me depressed answering that question. Yeah. Okay, then then talk to me about the way you would think about this question regarding you getting dealt aces 5x, you know you're going to get aces 5x the normal rate for one night and you have access to high stakes uh texas no limit game yeah how much okay. money are you bringing so uh so there is this thing the kenny criterion which you may on may or may not be familiar with you've heard of that uh, uh, it doesn't sound familiar okay okay well interesting so it's uh the couple of formula i'll take a guess at what it was is one of two things so essentially the kenny criterion says if you're gambling uh, and you believe you have the best of it, I think, um, so you, you have an edge, then what percentage of your bankroll should you wager, um, uh, based on your probability of success? And it's, it's kind of optimizing your return relative to the risk of those smaller kind of outcomes wiping you out. You're trying to minimize the risk of ruin. Um, and it's, it's something it's either half or two times your edge, something like that. I would go Google it. I've forgotten the details. Um, so I'd probably apply something like that. But my, like if I was really in this magical scenario, but I'm playing a pretty big game in about two weeks time in London with some buddies, a uh, private game, hence my buddy who's banned is playing that game. Um, 
Like, I do Why have do I so badly want in on that game? <laughs> it's, it's, you don't just, you don't. It's just horrific. But this book will complete lunatics. Um, so, uh, so I do have a, I have a sort of notional poker bankroll. I've got something called, uh, some poker tracker app, and it's kind of my lifetime, uh, winnings to date since I started tracking such things. Um, and it's a, it's a number in the sort of moderate five figures sterling. Um, I guess if I knew I was going into that game and I was genuinely going to get dealt aces five times more frequently and so on, going to be a, you know, significant advantage in this game, even though someone will spot eventually that I'm getting a lot of aces, um, I guess I would take my whole bankroll, um, and I just kind of wear it and I'd be happy to get wiped out, I suppose. I'd need to raise that money because I don't have that kind of cash just sort of kicking around in a bank account. But, uh, but yeah, go big or go home. See, that's what I was talking about. Every so often you get, you get dealt an investor's hand, right? You know, you're either a poker player or you're not. And if you are a poker player or investor, and here I'm defining it as both are enterprises that have, uh, that include high levels of skill with uh, an inevitable high uh, luck factor uh, in which the skill outweighs the luck. So if you're getting the stuff of, of the sort of probabilities given to you, it's kind of, it's, it, it's almost, it, I'm overstating this, but the way I'm thinking about it now is if I didn't want to make a high percentage bet on this high probability investing outcome, then I should maybe invest in index funds. Sure. Somewhere, somewhere in between those two things is probably the correct answer and based on your... It's age and your ability to recover from a tunnel of wipeout, that's pretty key. Like I will, and not to break your analogy, but aces are only like a 50% favorite against two opponents and against the, you know, if you get four or five people calling you, you're probably going to lose. So, um, you know, aces can be good in the right situation, but they can be deadly as well because you will tend to overvalue them and, uh, you generally going to play a big pot. So I, I, if you give me a choice of being dealt aces or being dealt nine ten suited, I'll take nine ten every time because I don't know where I am. Oh, interesting. Okay, all right. Am I ever going to get an invite to a game with you? <laughs> we'll get a game. We did talk about having a game with members of the Seven Investing Discord, so maybe we should um, renew that suggestion to Simon. I think it's a bit, maybe a bit unethical, but we'll have to play for prizes rather than cash. I think right. In quality time with us, right? What's more valuable? Yeah, you got it. Luke, it's so good seeing you crawl on the right side of the, the pond. Good luck in, uh, good luck in Dublin. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Good, good spending and, quality uh, time with you as ever. And, uh, let's see, uh, let's see what happens in two weeks time. Let's do it. Hey, by the way, we have to meet at some point. My mom is a big fan of yours. Uh, so, uh, she's reminded me when I saw her the other day. We need to, uh, <laughs> we need to press the flesh at some point soon. <laughs> if awesome. I make it out of Vegas, I'll let you know. <laughs> That's the best news I've heard in, in a long time. All right, Luke, take care. Cheers, dude.